And the song you just heard was Valerie June singing Somebody to Love on her album Pushing Against a Stone. You are listening to Women's Issues, Women's Voices on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM Community Radio. This is M, uh, one of your co-hosts. I'm here today with Erica Mindens, and Erica and I have uh, known each other for, I was thinking about it the other night in bed, 22 years. So two-thirds of our lives, since we are 11, do the math, uh, <laughs> and are 10, you're 10, because I was just turning 11, on uh, fifth grade, we met and we've been friends ever since. And Erica is located in Kansas City, Missouri, currently, um, and with her partner, her husband, and her daughter, Birdie, and who is turning two or three. She'll be two in about two months. Wow. Yeah. On February 14th. And um, so I invited Erica. I've been wanting to interview you for a long, long time, um, or to talk with you. I think interviewing is weird. It's a weird word. (laughs) But um, I mean, just about, you're just fascinating. You've always fascinated me. (laughs) But specifically about your experience uh, with your daughter when she was in the NICU. Um, And Erica just started her own podcast called Story Sanctuary, which you can find, I know, on Spotify and Apple. Yep, it's anywhere you find and listen to podcasts. Great, yeah. And so it's about your interviewing families about their NICU experiences. And uh, you've had made two episodes so far? Yes, I have released two episodes. They're bi-weekly. So the last episode was released yesterday. So in two weeks, we'll have another one. But I have maybe six interviews at this point lined up that are going to be released in the future. So, Wow. Yeah. And Erica, you've just, you've always been a storyteller and a lover of stories just thinking about that growing up like just reading voracious reader um I always knew I could turn to you for the best show or movie or you know there's something else that you're really into as well but oh and musicals yes (laughs) that's interesting yeah I, I do love a good story yeah and I love storytelling, like you said, books, television shows, musicals, and gossip. I love to mm-hmm. talk and tell stories. <laughs> it's, just, it's a powerful way of communicating. Yeah. And just in people, I feel like you just are, love people and are fascinated with the stories of people. Yeah. Um, so I'm just really excited for you on this journey. Um, and yeah, and thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, of course. I'm really excited too, because during my, well, I'll get into it, but during my NICU stay with my daughter, I noticed that telling my story just made me feel better. 
holding it in and not processing it made me feel worse. So throughout our story, we were always meeting with other parents, be it at the bedsides, in the cafeteria, just talking with people, learning people's stories, telling our story. And after leaving the NICU, I wanted to offer an opportunity for other families to find healing in sharing their story as well. Hmm. Yeah. And I love what you say in your, in the introduction to your podcast about the science behind uh, sharing your story. Do you want to mention that first? So yes, the science behind it. So when I was inpatient, I started reading this book called The Whole Brain Child. And I already realized that telling my story made me feel better, but didn't realize there was a reason for it scientifically until I read this book. So I was sitting there at bedside reading, and there was this part about how the right side of our brain processes our emotions, and our left side is what makes sense of the feelings and recollections, and how storytelling is when the right and brain right and left sides of the brain work together to make sense of our experience. And it just hit me at that point. I was like, wow, that's so fascinating that that storytelling has the science behind it for how it actually helps us to make sense of our existence, of our memories, of our understanding of the world. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's so powerful. <laughs> yeah. And to be heard with like compassion and, and just in reverence and not to be, to be witnessed. I found through a lot of like sitting in circles and sharing stories, just that witnessing without anyone like adding in their own stuff. Um, is so, can be so powerful. Absolutely. And that's something I can tell from my first interview to my fifth interview that I've gotten better with over time. Mm -hmm. When listening back to the stories, you really hear what adds value and Mm -hmm. at what point someone just needs to continue talking. Mm -hmm. And so the more interviews I've done, the more I've taken steps back and just continue to let people share their story. I recently finished narrative therapy with a psychologist to process our journey. And at the end of our sessions, the therapist asked me, what do I want to be the lasting memory of my experience? Mm -hmm. And this is a really big part of storytelling when healing from trauma. And that's, you don't want your story to be something that happened to you. When you go back and you retell the story, you're able to own it and really consider what do I want to be the lasting memory of this story? And so you're able to take that ownership. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I find that. Yeah. Wow. Definitely very true. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like Just, I was going to ask you in the beginning, I try to usually ask people who I'm talking with um, some self-care practices that have helped 
uh, you and your resiliency in navigating challenging circumstances. Uh, and it sounds like storytelling is one really powerful way. And I was wondering if there are any other uh, practices that you wanted to share with the listeners. Absolutely. In my adult years, I've realized that exercising and eating well are both so essential to my mental health. And so when we were in the hospital, and we'll get to the story, but my daughter was inpatient at the children's hospital after she was born for six and a half months. When we were in the hospital, it was really important for me to get outside and there was a track nearby. So walking around the track, I would make mom friends and we would get together and like, let's just you know, do a couple of laps around the track and clear our heads that way. Also, eating well is really, really important. Since being home, cooking is one of my hobbies. So being able to cook and to eat well is just an absolute amazing self-care for me. Cooking is really meditative. I like to get in the zone and just, I love chopping vegetables and just being in there and creating, um, creating things. So and you have your own Instagram for your food, right? That's true. That's true. Um, Do you want to name that? Yeah, it's called Bunny Food. My family, when I was growing up, they called me Bunny. And so, you know, I, I mostly eat a plant-based diet. And so people make jokes about that being rabbit food. So the page is called Bunny Food. And it. In eating a plant-based diet, I've just always found it important for it to be accessible. Like eating well shouldn't cost a lot of money and it shouldn't have include all kinds of ingredients that you don't have or that are hard to find. So just creating meals that are whole food based and accessible is what I focus on there. Yes. That's the most important part. (laughs) (laughs) That's so important. I also, though, like you said, love a good story. And so media is really important to me. Music, television shows, movies, books. So when my daughter was inpatient, one of the things that got me through was Drag Race. Completely obsessed with Drag Race. And I remember feeling so so crazy because I'm in this traumatic situation, but then I would go into the pumping room and be pumping and like watching drag queens perform. And I just, it gave me so much joy. And so I would watch the episodes and then I would watch the recap episodes on YouTube. And then I would listen to recap podcasts and I was just so deep in this world, but just the color and the music and the performance uh, is just, it just gave me life. And so it yeah. really did help during that time to find joy. Yeah. Yeah. And you, I mean, growing up, like you did a lot of theater and you have friends who do drag. And so it's like a connection line when you're isolated. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when, when you're in a hospital too, you don't get to choose who you're around. So yeah. being able to choose to you don't get to say, oh, I, I hope all of my nurses are artists, you know, and then we can talk <laughs> about art the whole time. You don't get to say that. So that's a good point, finding that connection point to our life before we had our kid. And my life, 
when I was younger, when I really was in touch with everything that I loved and was able to explore all of that. Yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. And I love that. I love just being like, we don't have to be these like, Oh, any moment I have, I'm going to be in meditation or doing yoga or like, it's great too. And I remember you telling me about how important your yoga practice was, but like, it's also so like storytelling and whatever form we can get it in, if it's nourishing us, um, and like bringing us joy and laughter and tears, um, is just, is so good. And of course, like not spending too much time on screens is great. Um, but it's okay to do that if that's what we have available to us. Absolutely. And I exclusively pumped for my kiddo for a year. Wow. And that was my time to watch something or like when I was in the hospital, going to the pumping room, I'm not going to just sit there and pump and stare at the wall. I'm going to watch Drag Race. I'm going to yeah. listen to this the podcast that talks about the Oscar nominations or whatever it's going on. Yeah. So um, that happened. And then after we got home, it was the same thing. A lot of moms feel like they don't have time to themselves. And looking back, pumping was my time to myself. I could say, all right, folks, I need to step away for 30 minutes to our nurse that was with us or my husband. And that was really helpful for my sanity to be able to just sit by myself for that 30 minutes uh, a couple times a day when she first came home. Yeah. I feel like we might have people on the edge of their seat about this Nick yeah. <laughs> okay so we want to get get started from the start at the beginning okay wherever that feels for you. where does our story begin so our story begins when I found out I was pregnant we had planned to have a kid so this was everything was completely planned I got pregnant right away that very first month and we were really excited. I was a teacher at the time and we planned it perfectly. So I would hopefully get pregnant that summer and then the baby would be born in February or March. And then I could take my maternity leave to the end of the school year and then have the summer off. So that was our plan and it worked out that way. I got pregnant in June and the first trimester was terrible. Luckily, I wasn't working because it was summer, so I was able to be home. And the second trimester was right when school started. So it just all seemed like it was lining up perfectly. So I, we got to the 12 weeks, and then we told everyone. We actually have a video of us telling our parents, because my husband's parents live out of town, and they came into town, and they happened to plan their trip right around 12 weeks. So we were like, oh my gosh, it's going to be perfect. We can tell both sets of parents together. So we were so excited about that. My school started back. So I went ahead and told my school family. Everyone's really excited. So around 14 weeks, we switched doctors. The first place I was, I felt like it was, I was on a conveyor belt basically. And I went to a couple of appointments there 
it was in the city here and I just didn't really feel comfortable. So I decided to go a little further out to, um, it's called Advent Health now, but it was Shawnee Mission Medical Center at the time. So we had our first appointment there when I was around 14 weeks old, 14 weeks pregnant. And it was just an appointment where they were switching over our paperwork and getting us in the system. But then they did a Doppler, just as Mm -hmm. that's just what they do. And when they were doing the Doppler, they couldn't find the baby's heartbeat. And the person tried and they were like, you know what? I don't really want to stress you out about this. Let's just go and have you do an ultrasound to Mm -hmm. see what's going on. I'm sure everything's fine. We'll just have to do an ultrasound. So we go in and do this ultrasound and they, the person found the baby's heartbeat immediately, but then they got quiet and I could tell something wasn't going, something wasn't right. But at that point, when you don't know anything about neonatal health and it's your first child, the only thing I could really think of was, well, there's a heartbeat. So that's a good thing, right? What could, what could they see that could be wrong? So I was like, well, maybe I'm just overthinking it. So the person, the tech said, congratulations. And they let us out of the room. And so we were leaving. And I remember thinking, well, we're leaving. No one needs to talk to us. Everything must be fine. But something in me knew that it wasn't fine. And as we were leaving, someone ran out and they were like, the doctor needs to talk to you guys. And so they pulled us back into a room and we had to wait in that room until someone came to talk to us. And it felt like forever. I don't know how long we were in there, but it felt like forever. I mentioned that we switch doctors because it's really important in hindsight that we got this news at this new place where we had just switched to. And in that first visit felt really comfortable versus if we had been given this news at the last place where we already felt like just a number. I'm sure that whole experience would have been different. And I'm glad we got this upsetting news at the new place with the new doctors. So when we were sitting in the room, it was September and it had been a sunny day. And as our appointment progressed, the weather started to change and a storm started to come through. And I remember sitting in that room and it just started pouring rain out of nowhere and it got Mm -hmm. so gray. And I was thinking, this means we're going to get bad news. And I'm like, no, no, don't make it about you. Like the weather doesn't just change because of what's going on in your life. But I'm like, no, this is a bad sign. We're going to get bad news. Mm. So I'm just sitting there and waiting and doctor comes in and they tell us that what they saw on the, or excuse me, what they saw on the ultrasound was that our baby had what's called an emphalocele, which means that all of her organs were not inside of her abdomen, that some of them were protruding outside into a sac, that the sac is made out of what the umbilical cord is made out of. And so they weren't contained in her abdomen. And that's all they could tell us. They didn't have any more answers for us at that time. They didn't know if this meant she wouldn't survive the pregnancy. 
They didn't know anything about her quality of life, what that would look like. And I just remember being in complete shock because we've never heard of this before. Mm-hmm. What is an emphalocele? This was the only time we'd ever heard of it and the only information we were given. So we just, we just got up and we left and we went to go process it. And I remember my husband points out now too, he's like, you seemed like you were fine when the doctor was telling you this information. And that's something that I've since processed a lot with my psychologist in that like allowing myself to be vulnerable when I feel that need instead of seeming fine. So I crossed my hands and I said, okay, well, thank you for giving me that information. And then I walked outside and I didn't shed a tear until we got in the car and I felt safe away from everything. And so we just spent both of us my husband and I just spent that whole day calling friends and family and just Mm -hmm. crying and it was hard because we didn't have any answers and from the beginning our story has been one of waiting and seeing Mm -hmm. and so it was hard to really explain to people what was going on when you didn't really know what was going on either we just knew that she had this condition Mm -hmm. and so we ended up switching over to a maternal fetal health specialist and doing testing. So emphalocils can often be, they can often happen with genetic issues. And so they had us do all of this testing to figure out if she had any genetic abnormalities and everything came back negative. They tested for Trisomy 18 is something that was a really big test. I remember waiting to come back because that's a test where if your baby tests positive for that, then they're not going to survive the pregnancy. Mm. And so we waited for that. And while we were waiting for that test, a coworker of mine, actually two different ones, told me that they had a baby that had trisomy 18. And Mm. so it was interesting from the beginning, we've just been building community around everything that we've experienced. But I remember feeling like we're not alone. Things happen. People figure it out. And we people are resilient. So hmm. after we, we got the testing back that said that she didn't have trisomy 18, at some point during all of this, we find out that we're having a little girl. Hmm. And we basically just have to continue on with this pregnancy. Mm. When we first found out about her emphalocele, I have no memory of when this happened, but at some point in that very first week, I joined a Facebook group that's called Mothers of Emphalocele's, Moo for short, and like Calprint is the the colors of the site. Uh, (laughs) But that group, saw me through everything. Hmm. When you Google Emphalocele, it looks really bad. It Hmm. just is so upsetting. And most hospitals haven't seen very many Emphalocele's. But there's a Facebook group where almost everyone that has an Emphalocele in the world is in this Facebook group. And so you can ask people questions at every stage of your journey. You're going to meet families at every state, every country to see what happens 
with some foul seals in that location. So from the beginning, I got in this group and that group really helped me have some positivity, some optimism during the pregnancy because I saw kids that had in seals that were living typical lives and that did well after mm-hmm. they were born. And then also in the group, people would ask questions like, what's something you wish you knew when you were pregnant that you know now? And early on, I saw that someone said, I wish I knew to enjoy my pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So that always stuck with me. And during the pregnancy, even though there were so many unknowns, I decided at some point to still enjoy the pregnancy, to take maternity pictures, um, Mm -hmm. to try and keep some faith and some hope through the pregnancy. So then really it was sort of easy in that way because I had an uneventful pregnancy. It was, Mm -hmm. it went pretty well. And I was low risk the whole time and had no issues. So we scheduled, well, the maternal fetal health specialist was at the children's hospital here in town. So we ended up for most of my pregnancy having appointments at the hospital with Mm -hmm. a specialist. And they even took us on a tour of the NICU before she was born. It was just the most prepared you could be in a scenario like this. And they said, you know, it could be four months in the hospital. And so we knew we were going to have a long-term stay. Mm -hmm. I also, during my pregnancy, I always wanted a doula. And then I found out I was going to have a C-section. So I wouldn't have the use for what I thought of as a traditional doula, doula. But during my research, I found out that there are postpartum doulas. And I found a postpartum doula who had a child in the NICU for four months. So she specialized in NICU stays. So she was with me during my pregnancy and after I was Um, after I had my little girl to support us. So we were prepared for whatever was going to be thrown at us. We we lived seven minutes from the hospital and we were like, okay, this is, we got this. Mm -hmm. So at 39 weeks, I had a C-section. And earlier you mentioned that she's about to turn two. And yesterday I said to my husband, can you believe that day where we got up and drove to the hospital for the C-section was two years ago? Because mm. it feels, it feels like yesterday it mm. is such a vivid memory to me of out of all the memories on our journey so far. So we got up and we went to the hospital and I remember exactly where we parked and which is crazy because we, I mean, she was there for six and a half months. So we parked a lot of other places since, but <laughs> I just remember that feeling um, of excitement, but of nervousness because I felt like we were going to have a good outcome. I just met so many families and we were so prepared. I was like, oh, it's, it's going to be out of all the emphalocils, this is going to be one of the easier situations. Mm-hmm. And Uh, We'll get to it, but it wasn't, and it hasn't been, but 
we'll get to that. So long story short, we go in, I have her. Luckily, because I was low risk, I could have her at the children's hospital. They have rooms for moms that are low risk, that are near the NICU. So pretty soon after having her, they, just a few hours, they were like, you know, if once you can get into a wheelchair, you can go see her. So mm-hmm. got into the wheelchair and went Were down. you awake for the C-section? I was. Wow. Yeah. How was that? It was strange. I was awake, but because of the medication, I was really out of it. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was like a dream state almost. Mm-hmm. And I remember when they rolled me into the operation room. I'm not sure what I thought before, but I didn't think it was going to be an OR. And that that was one of the first times I got really scared because before any of this, I have never had any medical issues. No one in my family has had any long-term hospital stays. We don't have any experience with a medical system in this way. So for me to now be going in and having a surgery was just, mm-hmm. it was really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, another thing that I do remember from that is they did the incision and they pulled her out and I could hear her cry. Mm-hmm. And I knew by her cry that she was going to have respiratory issues. Mm. That was something I picked up. I believe in the group over time was people when they're, you know, hear their baby cry, they can tell that they have strong lungs or not. Mm. There was just something about her cry where I knew that she was going to have, she's going to need some respiratory support. Mm -hmm. So they took her into a room that was connected to my room through this glass door. And my husband had to go back and forth and he went over and they were giving her a chance to breathe on her own. And she was really struggling. So then they decided to intubate her or to put a breathing tube down to help her rest and have that support. And then he came back over to me and I remember he was really torn. He's like, should I be with you? Should I, do you want me to, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, go be with her. I'm fine. Go be with her. So he um, went over and was there with the doctors for a while and he took pictures of her and everything. And then they stitched me up and rolled me away. And we just kind of waited until I felt comfortable enough to get up and go mm-hmm. see her. And then you got to see her. Yeah. 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 That that time is really, really, a, I mean, it's a stressful time to think about. Those early days, even if you don't have a NICU stay, when you first have a baby, you just feel out of it. Something mm-hmm. really enormous has just happened to your body. You just feel out of it and different. And then for us to be spending this time in the, in a NICU and at our hospital, 
So some hospitals have individual rooms for babies, but ours was more of an open concept where there were curtains separating. So you're around mm. other families and there's mm. no privacy. And then, like I said earlier, I'm not very good at showing how I feel around other people. So I just feel stuck because I'm not going to sit here and be crying and wailing in front of doctors and other people, even if I want to do it, it's just not in my nature to do that. And so um, I just remember being really out of it and trying to be positive, but also just feeling like so stressed. And there was at one point where I got mad at my husband because I felt like he was too happy. Like part of his coping was him like trying to be friendly to people and walk around and be like, Oh, everything's going to be okay. I'm like, why are you saying hi to all these people? Like stop being so happy. This is a really difficult situation. But of course that was part of his coping mechanism in this stressful time, especially I've seen since, when I'm having a difficult time to find a balance, then sometimes his energy level can get higher. Mm. So I could talk so much about our NICU stay. Mm. I don't know how much time we have, so I'm going to fast forward through the actual NICU stay and just give you some of the highlights. Um, Birdie did have respiratory issues when she was born, and we spent the first couple months trying different things like... BiPAP and CPAP and just whatever she needed to get the support. But it became apparent that her lungs needed pressure to stay inflated and she was working really hard. The way they explained it at the hospital was it's like blowing up a balloon where the first time you blow up a balloon, it's really difficult, but then it gets easier and when babies are small and we let their lungs completely collapse, not all babies, but babies in her situation, then it is really hard for them to reinflate. It's like blowing up that balloon again from the very start. And so our options for needing that pressure until she can learn how to do it on her own was for her to be intubated which would be for her to have a breathing tube and not to be able to be moved and just kind of lay there in bed and then hope that her lungs are improving and getting better or for her to get a trach. And so because I was in that Facebook group, I saw families that were living typical lives where their kid got a trach when they were in their first year of life. And so when that was offered to us, we knew that that's what we needed to do because with the trach, she could get up, she could do physical therapy and occupational therapy. She wouldn't have to just lay in the bed. She could be a child. And mm -hmm. so um, we made that decision. And that was one of the, the only times I remember myself fully just crying in front of the mm -hmm. hospital staff was during that meeting where they, I knew what they were going to say before the meeting, I just, I knew it in my heart that that's where this was headed. But mm -hmm. part of me hoped that they were going to have some other solution. Mm -hmm. But then we went in the meeting and they said that they were suggesting that she get a trach. And then I also knew that getting a trach meant we were going to be in the hospital longer because now mm -hmm. we have to learn how to take care of a child with a trach. We aren't mm -hmm. just taking care, taking home a child in a 
more typical situation or one that just has some oxygen needs at the beginning. Mm-hmm. We, the trach lifestyle is a completely different sort of lifestyle for a parent. So yes. of course, though, we knew that if that's what she needed, that's what we we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Looking back, it's hard to believe that we made that decision and went through that when she was two months old. Mm-hmm. That yeah. at the time, it just was where we were. But looking back, I I mean, I wouldn't wish that on anyone that has a two-year-old or excuse me, a two-month-old. So after the trach, she did really well. She wasn't struggling to breathe. We have pictures of her. We were nervous because when they give you a trach, when they give little ones a trach, they usually sedate them for several days afterwards so that they don't move and everything can get settled. And so we were just imagining thing and just being like basically lifeless for days but she did really well and so it was maybe just one or two days later where she was able to like play and we have all these really cute pictures of her right afterwards where she's like smiling and this was right before Easter and so we have pictures of her like with the Easter bunny that walked around the hospital and she just looks so sweet in her um she always wore bows or like some kind of head thing at the hospital mm-hmm. because she couldn't wear clothes. So we would just mm-hmm. do her hair and mm-hmm. put like a little thing on her. So <laughs> um, we knew too. So we had a lot of scans done before she was born and we knew that she was going to have a, that she had a, um, a VSD, which is basically a hole in your heart or an opening between two of the chambers. And Sometimes they close on their own and sometimes people, the doctors have to go in and close them. And so we were hoping that it would close on its own, but she ended up having one that was large enough that they would have to go in and close it. And having this hole wasn't, it's not something that is fatal necessarily. It just makes your body work harder. And so since she was already having the issues respiratory wise, having that blood flow in that way with her VSD was just, it needed to be fixed as well. So um, when she was four months old, she had heart surgery. And then after that, she did great. Uh, It was a little bit of a difficult surgery because her heart is more midline. Her anatomy is just different. And, but she did great. And after that, we learned how to take care of her. We had, there was a whole lot of it's like challenges that you have to complete before you can get out of the hospital. <laughs> and so we ended up leaving the hospital at six and a half months. So that was September of last year of mm-hmm. 2019. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing that it's only been like just over a year. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's crazy. But getting home, the home part was so different from the mm-hmm. hospital part. And she has just continued to grow and learn. And she's so smart and so much fun. <laughs> when she came home, she was ventilator dependent 24 seven. But if everything goes according to plan, we'll be done with the ventilator in a couple weeks. Wow. So, yeah. You've been weaning her off of that for quite a while now. Right. The process is 
yeah, basically you go, when you have a trach, you start with the ventilator. Well, not always in our situation, if you need it for pressure, then they start to wean you where you'll do five minutes, three times a day, where you just turn off the ventilator and let your child breathe on their own because it works as it's basically training wheels. So she has to learn how to do this and her body has to get bigger and stronger to be able to do this. Mm. So we've been off of the vent during waking hours for a while. And we just started the process of weaning at night. And so she could be done with the vent already, but of course there's a process. So we need to follow the steps, but she's definitely Mm. ready. That's a Mm. hurdle that she has gotten over is mm. being wow. attached to her vent. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> she is so, you all are so resilient. It's just incredible. Yeah. That's actually one of my lasting memories that I said for my narrative therapy session was resilience. Mm. And our other one was community. Because our community has just been such a powerful part of our lives from the beginning Mm -hmm. of this journey. I mean, for the first three months, Birdie was in the hospital. Someone we know brought or bought us dinner every single night uh, that we were there. Like knowing that we were going to be in the hospital all day and part of the night, we people reached out and made sure to take care of us Mm -hmm. in that way. So I wanted to tell you too, though, about when, so we left the hospital at six and a half months and two weeks later, you come back Mm -hmm. and you do, if you have a trach kiddo, you come back to do a follow-up. So when she got out of the hospital that September, school had just started for the new school year. That's like maybe a week before. So I was now a working mom and the mom of a medical kiddo who just came home. Mm. And at that two-week follow-up appointment, I went and saw a hospital psychologist mm. that I had been seeing inpatient when Birdie was in the NICU. And I told her just how horrible I was feeling, like how stressed mm. and scared and how just everything was so hard. And she said yeah, that's normal for trach parents after they leave the hospital. And I just remember being blown away by that, that what I was feeling, the trauma, the grief I was carrying, the trying to manage way too much was just considered normal and that there was no help for those parents. There's nothing unless you go out of your way to find it And even then, it's hard to find. Mm. We're not required to see a psychologist. I just happen to do that because I tend to try and plan well around things like that. Mm -hmm. So like when I knew I wasn't feeling well, I knew I should go talk to her. But it just really stood out to me that in the same way that our kids are required to have physical checkups, I truly believe that parents should also be required to have mental health checkups and to have support. Yeah. So that is why since then, I've really just been thinking, what can I do that in some way might help parents that have had these long-term NICU stays? And so 
the idea for the podcast story sanctuary came to me through that. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> wow. <laughs> I'm so yeah, just blown away by hearing your story. A little bit speechless. <laughs> And that's not even all of it. I'm st- I keep thinking of more things that happened along the journey. Yeah. It's it it's been a lot. Yeah. Do you feel like going through that last year has helped you in navigating the challenges of this year and COVID and all of that? Oh my goodness, yes. Wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow a lot of lessons that people learned through COVID we had Mm -hmm. to learn last year. For example, that you don't have control over everything Mm -hmm. and you could plan as much as you want, but sometimes you just have to let that go and go with the flow. Mm -hmm. That is a lesson that we learned on top of some of those bigger lessons, there's also the smaller things. Like when you have a kid that is immunocompromised or that has a trach, you can't take them everywhere because d- during cold and flu season, you don't want to go to a grocery store. When you go places, we're already, we went out to eat last fall. We had to wipe down everything with wipes to make sure that they were clean and watching your hands often, those sorts of things we were already doing. And then COVID made that a necessity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've had to take extra precautions. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you're the community that you've built up, that that's been a good resource through this too, to like already have those connections with people around the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And something else really wild that happened to us when we were impatient was we found out we were living in Kansas city, Missouri, and we found out that if we wanted to bring her home, our daughter, we basically had to move to Kansas Hmm. because okay, I don't want to get too deep into the muck with it, but long story short, we required in-home nursing when she first came home. And in Kansas, there's a waiver for parents that have medical needs or technology needs at home. Mm-hmm. And so they, this waiver covers the cost of all of your medical equipment that our house is filled with at this mm-hmm. point and um, that nursing that you need. And if we were in Missouri, we wouldn't have been able to cover that. And without the nursing, if you do not have nursing for 24-7 for the first two weeks when your child comes home, you cannot take them out of the hospital. So we, in the midst of it all, had to pick up and move, uh, (laughs) which was wild. But the community aspect of that has been really great because one of the charge nurses in the NICU actually lives across the street from us at our new house and down the street 
is a doctor that used to work on the home vent team at our hospital here. So we have built our neighborhood community. And so being able to lean on them and see these people through the quarantine and to be able to go on walks and recognize our neighbors, it ended up, even though that was incredibly stressful to have to pack up and move, it ended up being a blessing in disguise because of the community we've built around our home here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Oh, is there any, any final words you'd like to share? Hmm. Well, definitely listen to Story Sanctuary and share it with people that may or may not have had a NICU experience. There's value to be found in it for everyone. And continue to share your stories, especially when it's around trauma and grief and shame and those more difficult emotions. There's a Maya Angelou quote that says, there's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. Mm. I like to keep that in mind because though life has been difficult, it also has been joyous. And I think in large part, that's because of that sharing and building connection and being vulnerable in that way with the people around us. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your story and your joy and your grief and all of that with us today. And I'm just so, so grateful to have you in my life. And, and definitely, yeah, everyone go check it out. Check out Story Sanctuary, which you can find on Spotify and Apple and any other place where you can find podcasts. Yes. And Our Instagram page is Story Sanctuary, and there's more information about the families there. Mm. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Emily, thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Erica. Yeah. This has been Women's Issues, Women's Voices on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Going out, we have the song Forever Young covered by Rhiannon Giddens and Iron and Wine. A little bit of a male voice in here, uh, but we're going to let that pass. And both of these songs, uh, the song uh, by Valerie June at the beginning and at the end here, uh, were recommended by Erica herself. May God bless and keep you always May your wishes all come true May you always do for others And let others do for you 